This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism through the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode uses some jargon I've defined throughout the rest of the season. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. May 21st, 1922. The scene is the First Presbyterian Church of New York. Dark wooden pews, cream-colored ceilings. Harry Emerson Fosdick stood up to preach. Some called him the Jesse James of the theological world. His devotional books sold in the millions. Now, he was a modernist, didn't believe in the virgin birth, a literal interpretation of the Bible. Again, now this was 1922, at the hotspot of the modernist fundamentalist debate. He's about to say something electrifying, something that's going to take this from a sleepy Sunday with maybe a coffee hour afterwards and make it truly legendary in the battle between theologically liberal and theologically conservative Christians. Now, we'll get to what he said, but first, a little about Harry Emerson Fosdick. His rival, J. Gresham Machen, said of him, The question is not whether Mr. Fosdick is winning men, but whether the thing to which he is winning them is Christianity. Fosdick was one of the best-known modernist preachers of his day, but fundamentalists endangered his position, threatened to throw him out of the Presbyterian denomination, question his theology. In response, he got up and delivered this sermon. In 1922, he preached a, a very famous sermon called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? This is George Marsden, author of Fundamentalism and American Culture, a book I've used a lot this season. Sort of throwing down the gauntlet within the big denomination saying, look, there's all these conservatives that are trying to, to stop the liberal preachers and, and, and to have doctrinal tests for that, that would throw out some of the seminary professors who were more liberal. We need to stop this or the fundamentalists are going to, to take over and, and destroy all the progress that liberal Christians have, have been making. Should there be constraints on what a Presbyterian minister believed and taught? The fundamentalists wanted to lock those things in. Emphasizing fundamentals of the faith, your basics of the faith, such as the miracles of Jesus, the reality of the resurrection. Here is a taste of what Fosdick preached. The fundamentalists see, and they see truly, that in this last generation there have been strange new movements in Christian thought. And he laid out his case. There are two kinds of people in this world, those who like Neil Diamond, and those who don't. Now, he didn't say that. I'm just kidding. That's from What About Bob. Now, today is going to be pretty heavy, so I've got to lighten the mood any way I can. 
This next part is my summary. There are two kinds of people in this world, those who take the Bible literally and those who do not. Fosdick did not. In his speech, he argues backhandedly that those with new knowledge, modern, intelligent people don't believe in the virgin birth. Now, the fundamentalists, of course, did. Now, what follows is a real quote. Here in the Christian churches are these two groups of people. And the question which the fundamentalists raise is this. Shall one of them throw the other out? That is the big question of Fosdick's sermon. He does the same for inerrancy of scripture and the second coming of Christ. He doesn't believe in any of it. Listen, this is just one sermon, right? Just one sermon. Who cares what one guy preaches in one sermon in one church? But this speech had massive consequences. By the way, if you want to hear the whole thing, I read it for you and I've posted it at patreon.com slash truthspodcast for patrons of the show. Now, this message didn't stay at the First Presbyterian Church of New York. Oh, no. It was printed and disseminated widely thanks to John D. Rockefeller Jr. The Rockefellers, by the way, funded the University of Chicago, the modernist stronghold that ticked off William Bell Riley in our last episode. It's one of those odd twists of history that the liberals who championed workers' rights and the social gospel had their schools funded by a family famous for oppressing workers. Anyhow, thanks to them, here's your mail, pastor. Every, look what came in the post. Single pastor in the United States, special delivery, got a copy, and it was printed widely elsewhere. This sermon was delivered in a Presbyterian church, which means it was overseen by a denomination. And when other members of the denomination heard about what Fosdick said and wrote and distributed, they grew concerned. Here was a man in their pulpit preaching that the virgin birth, the miracles, and the second coming weren't central to the faith. In a denomination mostly occupied by theological conservatives, could they, should they, establish some sort of test by which to judge their preachers? One side wanted unity, the other, purity. Would this issue cause the denomination to split. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. 
Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. The modernist fundamentalist controversy was on. And the most famous of the conservative Presbyterian scholars, J. Gresham Machen, I wrote a book more or less in response to Harry Emerson Fosdick called Christianity and Liberalism, came out in 1923. And basically, Machen said, what we have here is two religions. We have one religion, which is the traditional gospel of salvation through trusting in Christ's work on the cross. And we have another religion that is salvation through making humans better people and cultural progress and following the ethics of Jesus. So he said, that's fine for people to believe those things. I mean, it's fine in the sense that they're free to do it, but they shouldn't claim to be traditional Christians, that there should be a separation between those who teach traditional Christianity and those who are adopting what is, in, in, in effect, a new ethical kind of religion. Essentially, there has to be this line where someone crosses from being a Christian to something else. Machen argues that modernism had crossed that line. So he writes this book in response to Fosdick. Yeah, Machen was a a Presbyterian who was an outstanding New Testament scholar, and and he had written a number of books. He was teaching at Princeton Theological Seminary, which was the most prestigious Presbyterian seminary. A longtime home of conservative theology up to that point. Remember, a lot of the most famous universities in the U.S. were started as Christian schools, but modernism was taking over. Eventually, the seminary politics led to a situation in in which he was denied a promotion. As Princeton became more modernist. This ought to echo what we heard in the last episode— William Bell Riley was upset by the lack of representation of conservative theological ideas in universities. Now, it was a real concern. That same battle was going on in the denominations. Soon the conservatives would see the need to make a stand for the miraculous. And they'd need the help of a certain Christian celebrity, William Jennings Bryan. When we last left Brian, he'd quit his position as Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson over the U.S. role in World War I. After that, he and his wife moved to sunny Miami, Florida, which was then a bit of a backwater. He'd lost some of his mainstream political strength, but retained his grassroots following. Thousands of people flocked to Florida for vacation. Brian greeted them with a giant Bible study in an oceanfront park, attended by hundreds. Though he no longer held office, he still had considerable influence through his publications and speeches. He was one of the most popular speakers on the Chautauqua circuit, and one of the country's first radio preachers. His wife toured around promoting women's suffrage, a cause he himself would support. And the Nobel Committee even considered Brian for their famous Peace Prize for his efforts during the war. Brian spoke on what would now be considered liberal opinions, payments to veterans, a minimum wage, restricting campaign funding, sexual equality, enforcing anti-prostitution laws against male clients as well as the women of the night. It wasn't all progressive politics. Again, he was a prominent figure in the Democratic Party. 
the party of Jim Crow. In this season, nothing is easy. Brian's main crusade for the last few years of his life became a fight against the decline of faith. And what caused that decline in his opinion? Darwinism. Now, before you roll your eyes or dismiss him, hold on just a moment. Darwinism in this era was applied not just to science, but really everything, including Christianity. Modernism is a sort of theory of evolution for religion, arguing that our interpretations of the Bible should change over time. Darwinism also got crammed into social sciences, and this is where it got scary. If species evolved and they were naturally selected to improve, couldn't we, or shouldn't we, get rid of the weaker members of our society and keep them from breeding? Now, think about it. What if there was a woman who was born with a low IQ? Hello? Nothing else out of the ordinary. Some people in that day would say, Do we really want that feeble-minded woman to breed? To bear more feeble-minded children? This movement is called eugenics, and I'm going to devote an entire episode to it soon. It's the idea that we as a society should pick and choose who breeds and who doesn't, or who lives and who dies, based on what we in society hold in high esteem. If the survival of the fittest is the ultimate goal... Don't we owe it to science and our children to cull the herd? Truly, one of the most wicked movements in world history, based on a gnarly interpretation of evolution. Maybe don't let your children listen next time. Because it went from theory into the real world, and is still with us today. Now, Brian, remember, wasn't a fundamentalist in the truest of senses, nor was he anti-science. In 1924, he joined the American Association for the Advancement of Science to turn people off of that idea. He wasn't worried about the science, but what leaps of logic people would take after doing the science. Leaps like social Darwinism. But so the logic went... If children were taught that they were nothing more than animals, in his mind, they would have no incentive to take care of the poor or those with special needs and might engage in endless wars of conquest, building empires. Again, that might sound overblown, but remember that guys like Teddy Roosevelt used the language of social Darwinism to promote the Spanish-American War and the subsequent occupation of the Philippines an American empire. We had just come out of World War I, and who was building an empire? The Germans, who would use eugenics in the next world war to kill Jews, the disabled, certain Christians, gypsies, and more. Brian read a book by a Stanford professor who studied the higher ranks of the German government, including the Kaiser's staff. He reported that to these men, natural selection meant a violent and competitive struggle that would end with the most advanced nation dominating or destroying others. So it's important to know that evolution wasn't just being taught in classrooms. It was applied to real-world people and countries as they went looking for ways to explain how the world works. This debate over whether or not to teach it had some real stakes. 
Again, Brian wasn't anti-science. He was against social Darwinism and growing empires. But, and this is where things get confusing, Brian wasn't necessarily against eugenics. We'll get to that soon as well. A bunch of websites and books and articles I've read make the case that he was. His final speech even seems to hint that he opposed eugenics. But, well, you'll see. As I've said, nothing is simple this season, especially with Brian. Trying to suss out exactly what he believed is not always easy. Because for a man known as Mr. Fundamentalist, his beliefs were actually pretty nuanced. Okay, so let's get back to the Presbyterians. Now, Brian was on a tear, writing and speaking against evolution. His book, In His Image, sold over 100,000 copies. And in it, he argued that American schools ought to teach what the voters demand. Now, Brian was a Presbyterian. Before 1920, he'd barely paid any attention to his denomination. But he was goaded into it by things like Harry Emerson Fosdick's articles in the New York Times. Like this one. Indeed, the real enemies of the Christian faith, so far as our students are concerned, are not the evolutionary biologists, but folk like Mr. Bryan who insist on setting up artificial adhesions between Christianity and outgrown scientific opinions, and who proclaim that we cannot have one without the other. He called out Brian by name, and then went on to compare him to the Catholic Church when it denied the discoveries of Galileo. Those are fighting words. What ensued was a volley back and forth in the Times. Fosdick wrote an article, so Brian fired off one in response. And then Fosdick wrote another one, so Brian had to write again. A very public battle. Fosdick lost his position in the New York church thanks to his comments about fundamentalists. Fundies like Machen wanted the modernists out of the Presbyterian denomination. And here was Brian having this visible battle in the newspapers with a very public modernist. Why not invite Brian to help? So they convinced Brian to run for moderator of the 1923 Presbyterian Assembly. As we know, Brian could run a great campaign. He was just bad at winning. And so he lost to the president of a denominational college where they taught evolution. Now, why did he lose? Historian Michael Kazin argues that it wasn't because of his theology or his fight against evolution, but because of his racism. Often subtle, but not always. Black members of the denomination were just not going to vote for him. And for good reason. He may have lost yet another election, but he and other conservatives continued to fight. They came up with a plan. Have the denomination reaffirm the five fundamentals they'd chosen in 1910. The inerrancy of the original manuscripts of scripture, Christ's virgin birth, his vicarious atonement, his bodily resurrection, and the reality of miracles as recorded in the scriptures. They also implemented a motion to condemn Fosdick's sermon and tell the New York office that they had to monitor the preaching in the offending church. The proposal passed with a solid majority. This, as you can imagine, upset the theological liberals. A group of ministers wrote a paper known as the Auburn Affirmation. It was signed mostly by liberals, but also contained the names of moderates and some conservatives. 
It essentially extols the freedom generally given to ministers and affirms the Westminster Confession. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed. They also argue that the five points had not been passed according to the constitution of the denomination and should be voided. According to the liberals, unity was the most important thing that they could agree on many foundational truths, even if they didn't agree on how those truths came to be. Machen and the conservatives weren't about to sit still and let this happen. The five points indicated some of the hottest issues, and reaffirming them was a big step towards doctrinal purity. In 1924, the fundamentalists won the election for moderator, and Brian became vice moderator. One concerned minister wrote to his wife that a split was sure to happen in the denomination, but strangely, nothing much happened. The five points? Denied! The Auburn Confession? Denied! Neither side won until the 1925 assembly. The fundies and the modernists were still up in arms, and the modernists did something kind of brilliant. They, of all things, backed a fundamentalist as their candidate for moderator, one who was friendly to their cause, and they won. That's right, the liberals got a fundamentalist on their side, and he won the election for moderator. When the time came to pass the five points, he leapt up and read a prepared statement declaring them unconstitutional. A church split seemed inevitable. Which extreme would oust the other? And facing a split, the fundamentalists lost their nerve. They compromised, including William Jennings Bryan, a committee formed to study the condition of the denomination. In coming years, it recommended that the five fundamentals be struck from the rules and that tolerance would be the winner of the day. Like in the last episode, the modernists got what they wanted. Machen eventually led the charge on starting a conservative denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, in 1936. Denominational splits were still to come, and boy, did they. For now, though, the standoff was over. The modernist fundamentalist controversy in both the Northern Baptist and Northern Presbyterian churches stalled with the liberals winning in each. They got what they wanted. Tolerance. Opting to keep things undefined. Which brings us back to that idea that Machen had at the beginning of the episode. Is modernism a branch of Christianity or a separate religion? Because somewhere along the continuum of belief, there must be that line, where it goes from being Christianity to something else. Uh, for example, let's say you're going to see a kung fu movie. You're going to go in with some expectations, that there's going to be kicking, punching, maybe fighting with weapons, good guys and bad guys. But instead of all that, you see... Oh dear me, whatever shall I wear to the ball? A period drama set in England. Men in tall hats, ladies in large dresses, hushed voices. You wore white to a ball? They would be such a scandal! You went into the theater expecting a certain something. 
But there was no action, not one punch, no kicking. Yet this quiet British drama was billed as Kung Fu. Would you be upset or at least a little confused? Of course you would, because words and categories have meaning. Even the most tolerant among us has to admit that at some point. A kung fu film without fighting is not a kung fu movie. In the same way, there has to be a point where someone goes from being a Christian to something else. When we make little cuts to theology, at some point, what's left stops being Christianity. Where is that line? At what point do you hold on to unity? And when do you call for a split? Special thanks to George Marsden, author of Fundamentalism and American Culture. I also relied heavily on Michael Kazin's A Godly Hero and his book What It Took to Win. Another helpful resource was The Evangelicals by Francis Fitzgerald. As per usual, you can find a list of sources in your show notes or on the website at trucepodcast.com. My small group has been reading our way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In those books, famous for their thoughts about the love of God, the early church has called to deal with a false doctrine called Gnosticism. If you're looking for a way to complement this episode with a reading in scripture, I'd recommend starting with 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Truce is listener-supported. I want this show to be backed by a lot of little donors. Because that means even if I poke your side like I may have today, and a bunch of people back out, I can still keep going. If I rely on one wealthy donor or company, they may want to dictate what is covered and who has to face the music. Instead, let's bond together and help me make this show full-time. You'll gain access to bonus features and help me work fewer hours at my full-time job. And that would be amazing, because I am really sleep-deprived. Thanks to the many people who gave their voices to this show. Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rut podcast, Amber Cullum of the Grace Enough podcast, and Paul Hastings of the Compelled podcast. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.